Um, I'm sporting this button now. Uh, <laughs> just wanted to draw attention to it. And the shoulder house, ask me about the shoulder house. I see Greg is uh, wearing one too. Uh, so is my wife. So friends, uh, get on board. Catechesis, I said in the first talk, is not simply about passing on facts. It's not just about acquiring information. Instruction, information does fit with an understanding of the world as pure nature, separate from the life of God. But as soon as we confess that God as our telos, as our aim, makes himself sacramentally present in the world, we can no longer treat education as simply passing on information. And I'm purposely using the word education broadly here because it seems to me that education and catechesis are closely linked. I'm going to talk about this, this afternoon, I'm going to talk about Hugh St. Victor, and he talks about that a great deal in some of his writing. Um, so we can no longer treat education simply as passing on facts. In a pure, as purely natural information. That holds true particularly when it comes to catechesis, because it, as a form of mystagogy, um, means apprenticeship into the divine life. So, in the first lecture, first talk, um, especially in the first part of it, I talked a great deal about sacramental telos, and uh, in this uh, second talk, I want to uh, say a bit more about how that uh, understanding of teleology as sacramental, um, how it is grounded in a, a broader sacramental ontology. And those two lectures and together lay the foundation for something this afternoon. You and I are thoroughly modern creatures. Our North American culture catechizes us continuously. It initiates us into a way of life, one that is only very partially compatible with the kind of catechesis that Christians pursue. This lecture is going to highlight the way in which modernity initiates us into a way of life that is at odds with our basic Christian convictions. Well, my understanding a Christian view of reality is a sacramental one. And this sacramental ontology, this sacramental understanding of reality, is at odds with a modern metaphysic, which in the first lecture I described as being materialist in character. What I want to do now is articulate the differences between uh, what I'm going to call a Christian Platonist, or also a sacramental approach, on the one hand, and a modern nominalist understanding of reality on the other hand. Having a good grasp of the basic differences between the catechesis of our culture and that of our church will offer significant help. When you're teaching, it's always good to be familiar with alternative approaches to the topic. Knowing the kind of cultural apprenticeship that your students are undergoing every day in almost everything that they encounter is going to be of help 
when you think through how to shape your own catechetical curriculum. So this background knowledge is going to help us focus on the kinds of things that are important to our apprentices as we instruct them in the Christian life. And so what I do in this talk then is, at least for the most part, not explain what I think catechesis should look like. Instead, I will, under, uh, I will explain some of the underlying presuppositions that ground Christian catechetics. Before going any further, I want to explain some of my terms. I mentioned the term sacramental ontology a moment ago, as well as Christian Platonism, and both require some clarification, I think. The very center of both of these concepts is the notion of mystery that we already briefly talked about, or that I briefly talked about in response uh, to Junius's question. Um, the notion of mystery um, is an important one in that until the late Middle Ages, say until the um, 14th and 15th centuries, Christians looked at the world as mystery. The word mystery didn't have quite the connotation that it has today. It didn't refer, for example, to puzzling issues whose secret we can uncover by means of thorough investigation. Think of the term, for example, mystery novels, right? We're puzzling out the solution to this, to this issue, to this problem. No, for the patristic and medieval mindset, the word meant something slightly but significantly different. The word mystery referred to realities behind appearances. Appearances that we observe through the five senses. In other words, although our hands, our eyes, our ears, our nose, our tongue give access to reality, they cannot fully grasp this reality. They cannot comprehend it. And the reason for this incomprehensibility of the universe, I mean, this, uh, earlier in the first lecture I talked about the universe, uh, the incomprehensibility of God. God is incomprehensible. But guess what? Uh, St. Gregory of Nyssa makes the comment, some people think they can comprehend God. We can't even comprehend ourselves. Right? We can't even comprehend the world around us. And the reason for that is, as Gerard Manley Hopkins famously puts it, the reason is the world is charged with the grandeur of God. Even the most basic created realities that we observe as human beings carry a deeper dimension, as it were. The created world cannot be reduced to measurable, manageable dimensions. The world is more than just its material DNA, more than just a collection of atoms, again, as I explained earlier. Now, much of this is relatively uncontroversial, I think, or at least I hope. When we talk about the ability of the senses to comprehend reality, we typically recognize they're inadequate to the job. And we generally recognize the reason for it is not simply faulty hearing, poor vision, or anything like that. It stems from the basic truth that reality really is mysterious. 
It carries an extra dimension that we're unable fully to express. Just ask any poet whether his or her poems are reducible to the syntactic and grammatical structures on the page. Clearly, they're not. When throughout the great tradition, people spoke of the mysterious quality of the created order, what they meant is that this created order, along with all the other temporary provisional gifts of God, is a sacrament. This sacrament is the sign of a mystery that although it is present in the created order, nonetheless far transcends it, exceeds it. It exceeds, therefore, human comprehension again. The sacramental character of reality is the reason why it so often appears mysterious and beyond beyond our comprehension. So when I want to talk about, when I talk about wanting to recover a sacramental ontology, I'm simply speaking of an ontology, an understanding of reality that is sacramental in character. The point is the mysterious character of all created reality is there because of its sacramental character. In fact, we wouldn't go wrong by simply equating the terms mystery and sacrament. Which is also why we don't just talk about the divine sacraments of the church as sacraments, but also about the created order as sacramental. Because it too is mysterious in character in a similar fashion. So what is so distinct about the sacramental ontology that characterized much of the history of the church? Perhaps the best way of explaining is by distinguishing symbols and sacraments. Think of a road sign with a picture of a deer on it. It symbolizes the presence of the deer in this particular area hopefully inducing you and me to slow down. Now, we're not going to be so foolish when we see the sign as to veer away from the sign for fear of hitting the deer. All right? We recognize it's only a symbol. It is just a symbol. The symbol of the deer on the sign and the deer in the forest are two distinct, separate realities. Former deer on the sign is a sign that refers to the latter, the actual deer in the forest. They're two separate realities. It's not like the road sign carries some mysterious quality that participates in the stags that are roaming the forest. All right? Symbol X and reality Y don't just have, oh, sorry, they do have, the, the symbol X and the reality Y have a merely external, a merely nominal relationship. We name them, we call them dear, but the signs aren't actually dear. So they're external. Now, if you have a picture in your book, 
And unfortunately, there's, there's one, only one circle. There's supposed to be a second one on the picture, which kind of fell away in the printing. But they're separate, as you can tell on the picture. Symbol and reality, if you have two circles there. They merely have an external, nominal relationship. The distance between the two makes clear there is no real connection between the two. Now, things are different with sacraments. Unlike mere symbols, mere symbols, Sac the word mere, just, only, those kinds of words, you want to be really, really cautious before you use them, right? Because they point you to a world that's absolutely boring. <laughs> Unlike mere symbols, mere symbols, sacraments actually participate in the mysterious reality to which they point. So sacrament X and reality Y co-inhere in each other. They co-inhere. The sacrament, you could also say, participates in the reality to which it points. So if you again have two circles on your picture, you could say, in this case, the circles overlap. The one participates in the other. Or the other is sacramentally, sacramentally present in the one. In, a, in one of his essays, Transposition, C.S. Lewis makes the same point when he distinguishes between symbolism on the one hand and sacramentalism on the other. The relation, he says, on the one hand, the relation between speech and writing is one of symbolism. It's kind of like my deer analogy. Speech and writing relate like the deer in the sign and the deer in the forest. The written characters exist solely for the eye, he writes. The spoken words solely for the ear. There's complete discontinuity between them. They're not like one another, nor does the one cause the other to be. Quite different, he says, when you look at how a picture represents the visible world. There's a different kind of a relationship, according to Lewis. He explains as follows. Pictures, he says, are part of the visible world. And they represent it only by being part of it. The visibility of pictures has the same source as the visibility of the material world around it. He continues, the suns and lamps in pictures seem to shine only because real suns and real lamps shine on them. That is, they seem to shine a great deal these pictures and lamps, these suns and lamps in pictures, they seem to shine a great deal because they really shine. Think real presence language, right? They really shine a little in reflecting their archetypes, their sources, their... The sunlight in a picture is therefore not related to real sunlight simply as written words are to spoken words. It's a sign, a lamp in a picture or a sun in a picture. It's a sign, but it's also more than a sign, he writes, because in it, in the sign, the thing signified is really in a certain mode present. Notice how he uses sacramental language here, right? It's really in a certain mode present. If I had to, if I had to name the relation, he goes on, I should call it not symbolical, but sacramental. So for Lewis, a sacramental relationship implies real presence. 
This understanding of sacramentality is part of a long lineage. According to the sacramental ontology of much of the Christian tradition, the created order is more than an external or nominal symbol. Instead, it is a sign, a signum, that points to and that participates in a greater reality, the race in sacramental language. Now, it seems to me that the shape of the cosmic harmony of things is one in which earthly signs and heavenly realities are intimately woven together, so much so that we can't have the former without the latter. The reason why the world is mysterious, in the understanding of the great tradition at least, is that it participates in a greater reality from which it derives its being and its value, its significance. So instead of speaking of sacramental ontology, you can also talk about participatory ontology. Now the insistence on a sacramental link between God in Jesus Christ and the world is not just that God has made the world, created it, and then declared it to be good. It also goes beyond positing merely a covenantal relationship of some sort or other between two completely separate beings. Covenant theology is great, it's biblical. Doctrine of creation is great, it's biblical. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. But a sacramental ontology insists that not only does the, um, the created world point to God as its source or as its point of reference, but actually subsists or participates in God. So participatory ontology points to biblical passages such as Acts 17, verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, right, even Plotinus knows about these things, we are his offspring. And concludes, this concludes that our being participates in the being of God. Now such an outlook turns to other passages such as Colossians 1. Christ is before all things and in him all things hold together. Or think of the angelic hymn of Isaiah 6. The whole earth is full of his glory. Ephesians 1, 23. The church as Christ's body is the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And such an outlook, therefore, argues that the truth, the goodness, the beauty of all created things is grounded in Christ, the eternal logos of God. In other words, because creation is a sharing in the being of God, our connection to him is participatory, real, not just external, nominal. Now, some folks worry about the great tradition's participatory account of reality, its sacramental outlook on things. If created being participates in the being of God, the eternal word, doesn't that make created being divine? Doesn't it erase 
to create a creature distinction. If you're a Christian Platonist, don't you lose that transcendence of God? And don't we end up, therefore, with pantheism? Those are actually important objections, I think. And um, they point to real dangers. And we need to acknowledge that Christians cannot simply be pure Platonists. Christian Platonism emphatically does not mean a wholesale adoption of Neoplatonism. It's true and unavoidable, I think, and even good, that a certain Hellenization of the gospel took place in the early church and in the Middle Ages. It's also true, though, that the Christian tradition generally knew at certain junctions it was important to say no to Platonic excesses. This was true in, a, in particular with regard to the way in which participation function, functioned in Neoplatonism. Its understanding of participation was based on the idea that creation emanates by necessity from eternal ideas and ultimately from an impersonal, unconcerned one. Christians rejected these notions of a necessary emanation as well as the pantheist worldview that it entails. So there's a real danger out there that Christians traditionally, for the most part, healthily have said, uh-uh, can't go there. Why? Because creation is merely, and here you can say just, is just a sacramental sharing or participating in the life of God. The word just, in this case, alerts us to the infinitely great difference, the infinitely great difference or dissimilarity between God and the world. Christian theologians refer to creation's relationship with God by using the philosophical language of analogy of being, analogia entis. The doctrine of analogy is a way of speaking philosophically about this sacramental relationship between creation, or sorry, between creator, I should say, and creation. And so the being of creation, as well as creation's beauty, truth, and goodness, is similar, analogous, right? Analogy of being. It is analogous to, it is similar to, and therefore not identical to, the being of the creator, the truth, the goodness, and the beauty of the creator. Analogy or sacramentality implies that while creatures may in some way be similar to their creator in the way in which they exist, they're in no way identical to him. Now, of course, analogy of being does imply a link between God and the created order. Hence, the similarity. Just as one might say of a painting, that's typically Rembrandt. It has Rembrandt's imprint on it. Creatures have the imprint of their creator by virtue of being made in the image of God. That's one side of the coin of analogy of being. There's a similarity. But the coin has another side too. 
the doctrine of analogy also insists on the infinite difference between creator and creature. In fact, it is that dissimilarity that's the main point of analogy. Though there is a certain similarity between the way in which God is good and the way in which creation is good, nonetheless, the infinite difference remains between the goodness of God and the goodness of creation. And so the Fourth Lateran Council of 1215 insisted that between, and I'm quoting here, between the creator and the creature, so great a likeness cannot be noted without the necessity of noting a greater dissimilarity between them. So analogia enters, analogy of being, basically claims the connection between creator and creator is merely sacramental in character. Yes, creation truly participates in its eternal Christological anchor. And I think it's important that we do this Christologically. But, despite this true participation, it is strictly a gift of grace, and it in no way erases the creator-creature distinction. In fact, sacramental participation limits the significance of the created order. Its truth, goodness, and beauty are not its own. They're merely derivative of the being of God. Idolatrous self-assertion, therefore, erasing the creator-creature distinction, is out of the question. The infinite dissimilarity of the doctrine of analogy, or you could say of the sacramentality of creation, the infinite dissimilarity serves to sound a Christian no to Neoplatonist pantheism. God and creation should not be confused. Now, that understanding of analogy came to classical expression in the 13th century in St. Thomas Aquinas. And in important respects, Aquinas took his place simply within the long-standing Christian Platonist tradition. Not in every respect, but in many ways, that is the case, I think. Thomas argued that God is so much greater than we are that we cannot, again, adequately comprehend him or talk about him in straightforward language. That's still the case with Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century. So if we were to ask, what is God like? What's his essence? Well, we can only answer, according to Thomas, that his essence the essence of what he is, is to be, existence itself. God would not be God if he's not, if he is not. And so God, for Thomas, is not becoming. Unlike the world that he made, for which to move and to become is a good thing, God doesn't change. That's why Thomas says God is immutable. There's no potentiality in God. God for Thomas is pure act. Now, all of this is different for created beings. In created beings, there is a real distinction between essence and existence. Why is that? Well, because created being is of the borrowed kind, you could say. Created being is, is, only, is only because by grace it participates somewhat 
in some manner, in a creaturely manner, in the existence of God. Only of God can we say there's no distinction between essence and existence. Only in God can we say those two are identical. Of God is so, transist, so transcendent that we cannot grasp his essence. So that we cannot use straightforward language to describe adequately who he is, to name him adequately, as Thomas would put it. That raises the question, how can we talk about him at all? Now, Thomas, again, dealt with this question by means of the doctrine of analogy. On the one hand, because there is a participatory link between our existence and God's, it's possible for you and me to talk about him in human language. And I think I would want to ground this, like Shunu, in the theandric mystery of the Incarnation. On the other hand, Thomas was also convinced that when we talk about God, we have to remember the infinite difference that remains. It is a theandric mystery. So in stating God is wise, we don't imply, according to Thomas, that God is wise in the same way you and I are wise. His insistence, Thomas's, that human discourse cannot comprehend God shows that there he's certainly faithful to the great tradition's emphasis on the mystery of God, as we saw in our first session with Marie-Dominique Chenu. Human beings cannot comprehend God, cannot grasp the essence of God, cannot see the essence of God, and contrary to Thomas, I would say, cannot ever see the essence of God, at least not in the sense that Thomas understood that. The word wise cannot possibly applied to God and humans in the same way. The language we use for God doesn't apply to him in a straightforward fashion. In the 14th century, though, John Don Scotus argued the idea of analogy of being just doesn't make sense. Something either has being or does not. To say God exists and creation exists is to say one and the same thing about different persons or things. All being, therefore, is being in the same sense, though, of course, God is greater than we are. Put philosophically, all being, according to Scotus, is univocal in character. Unus, one, vox, voice, so your voice, the way you talk about it, is in one unus, one in the same manner. Straightforward language, in other words. Analogy of being had served to uphold, remember, the infinite difference. That was the purpose, to show up the dissimilarity between creator and creature. Scotus's univocity of being, by contrast, countered being is an objective, neutral category. That's important for our understanding of catechesis here. Being is a neutral, objective category. And God's being and created being are identical in kind. What this does is it allows us to treat being as a category 
unhooked from participation, creaturely being as unhooked from participation in God's being. It flattens out the world, in other words. It makes it strictly horizontal or imminent, this worldly. There's nothing hidden in it any longer. What you see is what you get. Stop, full stop. This novel assertion of university has hu had huge implications for the way in which people have come to regard their relationship with God. For Christian Platonism, there had been this sacramental link between, creation or, between the created order and the eternal word of God. That's what made the mystagogical process of catechesis possible. By contrast, Scotus's university atomizes this worldly beings, plural. No longer can catechetical mystagogy, therefore, initiate creaturely beings into the divine life. Because what language now does is it simply hops, skips, and jumps from the one created object to the next. There's a gap increasingly in the late Middle Ages between this worldly being and otherworldly, and a otherworldly being, I should perhaps say at this point, an otherworldly being. Earthly objects no longer receive their reality, their rays, from God's being. Earthly objects come to be seen as having their own independent being, the pura natura that I talked about in the first session. And before long then, the West would enter into a cultural phase of mere facts, just facts, pure nature. And education becomes passing on information, passing on facts, pure facts. Well, if creational being no longer has a real participatory connection with God, of course it always does have that, but if we no longer recognize it, then the relationship between creator and creature as two distinct beings, where God is just one being among many, that relationship would have to be configured differently. And so the real presence of a sacramental relationship has to make room for a different type of relationship. Think of, again of the two circles. No participatory or real bond, but instead an external or nominal link. And that newly conceived external connection is guaranteed how? How do we link the two circles between symbol, mere symbol, and reality? How do we conceive of them? as being related somehow. Well, by way of the will of God, the voluntas Dei. It's the will of God that now comes to, in as much as we're still Christian at least, that's how we're now securing the relationship between sacramentum and reality. Think of what that does to moral theology, for example. When God condemns theft or adultery, for the tradition, for the scriptures, 
This is not an arbitrary act of divine will from above, plunging down to us below. No, it's it, it, this condemnation of either theft or adultery, or, or, or adultery is in line with who God is. It's a fitting condemnation, or as the, as the earlier tradition often called it, it is a congruous decision of God. It's not arbitrary. It is in line with the truth of divine rationality. God's will and God's, God's intellect are harmonious. In fact, in God, they're one and the same thing. So when God rewards almsgiving, for example, this is not because he arbitrarily decides Arms, uh, almsgiving is a commendable practice. No, it's because almsgiving is in line with who God is. He is a philanthropic God. He's a generous, giving God. Scotus proffered a radical disjunction between will and reason, will and intellect, and between goodness and truth. There's a new voluntarist age being birthed which departed from Christian Platonism by arguing God's will determines the moral status of a particular act. Think of the strong emphasis on external commandments in, certain Christian, in some Christian traditions, certainly in the Christian tradition that I grew up in, strongly Calvinist tradition. The consequences of this were close at hand. If something is good, Strictly because God wills it to be good. Then cannot God declare anything, even the most horrible act, to be good? Now it seemed there was nothing in almsgiving per se that made it an inherently good act. God simply wills, declares it to be so. It was hard to avoid the implication that God was an arbitrary God who declares the moral status of human actions simply at whim. Scotus's university of being then gave rise in the 14th and 15th centuries increasingly to a voluntarism that has ended up exalting the absolute freedom of the divine will at the expense of the truthfulness of divine judgment. The world's real sacramental participation in God gave way to an external relationship in which God ruled from afar increasingly by means of a radical freedom of divine will. God is in heaven and human beings are on earth. The voluntarism of the Scotist school deeply impacted both late medieval theology and the subsequent direction of human culture. Louis Dupre, great author, if you want to follow up on, I'm not sure, is he in the list that we have? Yeah, he's in our list, so he's in your book. Louis Dupre succinctly summarizes the impact. He writes, if creation depends on the inscrutable decision of a God who totally surpasses the law of human reason, no theos, Theo, um, theandric mystery here, as, as Shirnu talks about, right? If this is the case, well, then nature loses its intrinsic intelligibility. Why in the world is this spider spinning its web? Think of this morning, right? 
Grace, he says, also becomes the blind result of a divine decree, at least in some of our theologies, right? Randomly dispensed to an unprepared human nature, the emphasis on a divine omnipotence unrestricted by rationality results in a supernatural order separated from nature's imminent rationality. In just a few sentences here, what Dupre does is to point to a number of serious consequences that result from university along with an exaltation of the will. First, he says, nature, now separate from reason, becomes fundamentally unintelligible. Well, I don't have to point to any consequences. We all recognize this in our society, right? Nature is unintelligible. There no inher there's no inherent logic to human nature or any, or any other natures, for that matter. Skepticism is the inevitable result. And second, the emphasis on divine decree appeared to cut the link between divine will and divine knowledge, God's goodness and God's truth. The upshot would be a Protestant emphasis on divine predestination, in which God appeared arbitrarily to make decisions about eternal salvation and damnation. And third, since grace is the blind result of this divine decree, theologians would conceive of this grace as an arbitrary, sorry, as an arbitrarily dispensed or imposed gift. Thomas's notion that God's gift of grace was somehow connected to a natural desire, this appetitus that I talked about earlier, that's present in all of us as a final cause, became unsustainable. And finally, fourthly, all of this implied a distinct not supernatural order, one strictly separate from the natural ways in which we do things, insofar as we can call them natural still. Since modernity is built on this late medieval voluntarism, this exaltation of the will, it is critical that in our catechesis, we don't just offer a set of moral codes. However tempted we may be, especially in our late modern culture, where everything seems up for grabs, the answer is not simply to offer a set of moralistic codes for our students to follow, a list of do's and don'ts. A strict focus on divine commandments coming from above will instill in our young people the sense that God is an absentee tyrant who intervenes every now and again to hold us accountable. That's a purely deontological understanding of morality, where moral teaching is simply the study of divine duties, deon meaning duty, deontological approach. It fails to recognize that our morals have to do with who we are. We'll talk more about that this afternoon in connection with Hugh of St. Victor. It has to do with our character, our virtue, 
Our wisdom, remember, participates in God's wisdom. Our hospitality, too, shares in God's. Our love is an analogical approximation of God's. So catechesis, when it treats of the Ten Commandments as it traditionally does, and rightly does, I think, when it does this, it should focus on moral virtue. Not only on external commandments. Now, I want to, just one word of caution here. Does God issue commands? Yes, he does. Why? Well, in some sense, God is external to us. God is transcendent to us. Absolutely. God is greater than we are. God is incomprehensible. And therefore, God does give us commandments which we are to obey. Think of the beautiful Psalms on 119. It's just that commandments are never just commandments. They issue from a God who is certain things and who has certain characteristics that are in line with those commandments. And so, moral teaching in catechesis focuses first and foremost on the formation of human character, patterned on God's character as he shows it in Jesus Christ. How long have I talked? 45 minutes, and it's supposed to be 45 minutes. And I have, oh my goodness, six pages or so. I'll go real fast. So, um, one of the most important elements Christian tradition borrowed from Platonism is the notion that forms or ideas have real existence, right? All these cats that you see, they participate, again, in real Felinity. This is called a realist epistemology, a realist theory of knowledge. We can trace these universals, felinity, humanity, etc. We can trace those to the eternal word of God, the eternal logos of God. In other words, felinity, humanity, etc. They're not just words, names, as William of Ockham would have had it in the 14th century. They're not just names. Nominalism says, well, they're just names. So I call Socrates a man and I call Plato a man. But that's not. They're just names, nominalism, right? It's not like these names really participate. It's not like Socrates and Plato, I should say, really participate in this universal called humanity. There's no such things as an eternal form or idea. Occam's razor shaves off these unnecessary forms, shaves off these unnecessary names, for that's all they are, according to Occam. So there's no participation any longer of Socrates, of Plato, of this cat, that cat, and that cat in these universal forms. They're merely nomina. How come Socrates and Plato look so darn similar? How come these cats look all like cats to you and me? The will of God. Same emphasis on this transcendence of the divine will. God just decides to make them similar. The outcome of this cutting of the link, you could say, between this world, Socrates and Plato, and eternal realities, humanity, 
and other universals in Jesus Christ. The outcome is the disenchanted world of modernity. Again, Louis Dupre. The idea of an independent order of secondary causes, like all these atoms and fragments I talked about earlier, led to a conception of nature as fully equipped to act without divine assistance. We no longer need God, in other words. The basic problem, for Louis Dupre at least, is this separation between two distinct orders, which leads to a different understanding of politics, a different understanding of economics, a different understanding of the way in which we live together. The modern perspective has led to the enjoyment of being, this worldly being, for its own sake. For its own sake. Which is an offense against the Augustinian dictum that only God is to be enjoyed for his own sake. Ironically, actually, what that does, this focus on this worldly being as true, good, and beautiful for its own sake, is that actually we end up losing their value. Why? Seems maybe counterintuitive. With all this focus on this worldly good, why do we lose its valuation, its significance? Because we now have to construct what exactly is the truth the goodness and the beauty of these particular objects. We have to impose those externally on these objects. But such constructivism and our postmodern vacuity, I think, makes that quite clear. Such constructivism is a burden that's simply too much to carry. It leads to all the political, economic, and moral dilemmas that you and I, and especially our kids, face every day around themselves. How do I decide X? How do I go about Y? Nobody can tell. Why not? Because there's no participation in any of these truths, true things, good things, beautiful things, and anything that transcends them. Hence, all the dilemmas that contemporary society faces. One of the most important cultural tasks of Christian catechesis is therefore what? It's actually initiating students back into Christian Platonism. The recognition that this worldly realities are what they are, have the significance that they have by participating in universals that are real, that have their reality in the eternal Word of God. All right. Um, I don't know if Alex is here, but I think we have our respondents. Yeah, applause. Yeah. Um, one, of the, one of the things that's ringing in my head is uh, kind of a carryover from, the, carryover from the first lecture to this is um, the idea of mystagogy as discovery. And I think um, you unpack it 
in your second lecture really well. But it opens up um, catechesis to not just instruction in a classroom, but you begin to see the connections with like things like spiritual direction, um, with preaching. Think about this, not as you, as you say, Dr. Borsman, not as a list of facts or as even just a plain reading of scripture, which is beneficial and good, but also a, a wondering about the mysteries in the thing, embedded in the thing. Um, liturgical catechesis. Uh, why do we do the things that we do with our bodies? It reminds me of the way that Ambrose does catechesis. Uh, let me take you back to the memory of when you were baptized. Do you remember what the priest said? How Was the water cold? What was going on? What did you hear? This kind of, this imaginative rediscovering of the things that are embedded. Um, even in discipleship, I think mystagogy can be a posture, and this is what I'm, my point. Mystagogy, it seems, can be a posture um, that is trying to unearth the mysteries of what God is doing in a person's life or in scripture um, that reveals its telos ultimately in union with God. Um, and I would, I would say that what, what's really helpful in, in what you've outlined as well is that the lack of mystagogy as a posture like this isn't neutral, um, especially in kind of nominal secularism. There is mystagogy happening. There, there is a cultural telos to things. There are formative they're like cultural pedagogies underway. And so the lack of catechesis in the church or mystagogy isn't just a neutral thing. It's not that, that it's not happening. It actually is happening. And so our mystagogy, to some degree, I think must always be understood as counter-mystagogy, as counter-formation, counter-pedagogies. Uh, and um, I think when, when we keep that in view, some of the things that I've seen that even in myself and in others, that we come to catechesis as saying, here's what we're against. This is what we're not so don't, like the Ten Commandments teaching it this way, right? This, we, you don't do this, you don't have any fun, your life sucks, like you just follow the rules and trust me, it'll work out fine. As, as opposed to um, uh, finding in the commandments embedded this beautiful character of who God is and that is actually more beautiful than the cultural pedagogies and the, cultural, or the secular telosses out there, um, that it doesn't even compete because it's so much more profoundly beautiful. Does that make sense? Um, and so in this, I, this is like a huge thought that I'm like giving birth to now, but um, <laughs> so I'm, I apologize. But I think in that sense, one way to like maybe um, capturing that whole thought is to say that um, the kind of catechesis you're describing, Dr. Borsma, is necessarily liturgical, meaning it, it involves the entire drama of the Paschal mystery, the beatific vision, not just intellectually or even as like some sort of recollective thing, but actually uh, embodied, yeah. in light, enacted in the drama of the liturgy. Um, and you get to see the spillover again in discovering these mysteries. You see the spillover in, in spiritual direction and preaching in liturgical catechesis and discipleship. And I, I would, the practitioner in me is saying, this is really interesting, but how do we know that we're actually doing this and how do we know that it's working um, is, a, is, is my next question. And I, I wonder if, um, we see the effectiveness of the mystagogy we're actually doing when in, 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 in missional ways, when we begin to see people saying at the dinner table with their friends, their neighbors, I wonder what God's doing. I wonder what has, is embedded in this person's life that now I get to participate in the hospitality of God to unearth and discover. Um, where the, the act of um, neighboring or parenting or um, the arts we, get, we begin to see the spillover of mystagogy, right? You, you see the fruit of 
the mystagogy that we're doing as a, as a congregation or as a parish life, you begin to see it spill over in, in surprising, surprising ways. That's maybe a big first kickoff thought that I had. Lee, I'm wondering what you're thinking about. Well, I want to echo what you said. Um, I, I've been thinking a lot lately about Charles Taylor and the, and the buffered self, mm. this, this idea that I sort of exist within space and within time, and I, I decide for myself so much. Um, and there's something, there's something deeply um, subjective in conversion, isn't there? I mean, we all have different experiences. If we talk about, you know, why are you here and what, what was your experience of faith, you'll have a different, a different take. Um, but I do think that one of the ways that catechesis can be very effective is, and one of the really prominent ways, is to take that subjective experience of conversion and give it a public voice. Um, and I think that's something that, that uh, has to be done by analogy um, because, and it has to, but they have to learn a vocabulary as well. Mm -hmm. People have to take on a vocabulary. Um, but I think it's also just to say that, that certain realizations have to happen along the way um, that may be completely foreign to the modern mind. I mean, one of them is the, the idea of embodiment in general. Um, uh, the idea that we inhabit a sacramental universe. Well, how do you, how do you communicate that adequately? Well, you, you can communicate it within a catechesis course, but I think you're right that, that uh, it's vastly and very well communicated within the church's liturgy. It's very well communicated simply in the fact that, um, well, the thing that any American does on a weekly basis at all that communicates this reality is sit, stand, kneel in a pew with others engaged in this common activity where they're specifically not buffered. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's deeply, deeply transformative. We've seen how it here, how deeply transformative that's been for our children to participate in that. Um, uh, that, that one of the things we see is that, that we're not forming them in that way, and so, so they have this, this understanding of, of the deep mystery going on here. Um, which, is, which is often uh, the source, we were talking about this at dinner last night, a, a source of dismay for older Christians. <laughs> why is that child, you know, screaming out for the Eucharist? You know, why is that child, uh, I think you mentioned this last night, this, this Lenten array, you know. Uh, this is a wonderful thing. We, we have this, this very sparse image here. Behind that, if you could only see it, is this glorious image of the risen Christ. And some kids have mentioned, that's, that's not right. <laughs> uh, you know, I want to see Jesus again. Um, and, and what this is teaching, and how this functions catechetically, is it, is it, it teaches them that, that um, in a huge number of ways, that they participate sacramentally in Christ. Um, Can I jump on that? Yeah. Because um, I think this is a really helpful distinctive. Jamie Smith's kind of idea of... Um, in Desiring the Kingdom or other books of um, the, the liturgy as formative, like healing desires, that kind of Augustinian pickup of like we, we, we enter into the practices that end up forming our desires and, and, and forming us as whole people. I, the, I think that there's a distinct pushback or there's a, dis, a distinction between what you're saying here and what you just said that's really critical, which is that um, something that is liturgical or the liturgy of the church isn't something because it's formative, just because it's formative, but it is formative because it's actually participating in something. Right. Um, and that, that may seem like a 
word games. I don't think it is. I think it is um, a, a kind of sacramental realism that's taken hold of the imagination of a Christian. That's, that's an important thing that I think that we need to pick, I want to piggyback on just a little bit, which is that I think for, for many, uh, use of the liturgy has become a thing. It's a tool to do something else. That's actually like applying Occam's and, razor to yeah, the liturgy, just, right? That's like, just insane. It shaves off the meaning. Right. Uh, and I think, I think people at Christ Church will resonate with this, is that, no, that's, that's why you, you, you do things in a big way rather than a small way, right? It's why more is more. You, you, if you're gonna, if you're gonna have a baptismal font, make it out of stone and not plastic, right? If you're gonna, if you're gonna have an, if you're gonna have an altar, make it face one direction, not because, not because it's, you know, and and you can jump all over me if you want, but it's just simply to say that what we're trying to convey is something which is a shock to the system. Um, I think I really do think this now as a catechist. Modern people have to be shocked out of. Um, this this sort of complacency with 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 uh, with with their nominalist worldview. It's weird. Just yeah, it is. Oh, it's totally weird. It's it's, it's idiosyncratic. But I think it's I great. think that's yeah. why you know I'm always I always find myself critical of this idea that says well we wouldn't want to do that too much because people might not get it. Whereas I'm saying do it a lot, then people will get it. <laughs> and so it's just to say I think there's a difference in practice. It also reminds me of the need in, in, practically speaking, in catechesis to not just sort of like jump into the teaching, mm. but instead to do things like sing hymns mm. and look at an icon for a while mm. or, uh, or even just wander around the church for a while mm. um, because um, we're, we're not made to think about education or catechesis and we're not even made to do it in, a, in an entirely passive way. And I think that passivity speaks to a kind of lack of participation. Whereas if you do catechesis well, I think, and Leslie will love this, it's all participatory. Right. Um, it, it all leads the catechumen to participate in the mystery that they are considering, um, which, is, which is huge. I also think there's one more thing to just kind of add on, which is that um, a principle that's meant a lot to me lately has been the need to exercise reserve in catechesis. Mm. That without reserve, we tend to just lay all our cards on the table, and then people think, oh, well, that's it. That's what, that's what I have to learn. Whereas if you just hold back a bit, um, it's like great chefs know how to do this. Don't, don't assault the palate. Mm. Hold back. Um, take your time. Um, Hit them with something really glorious at the end in a dessert. Or, uh, and and, and it, it's lovely, right? It works. Um, I think even, all too Even often, in preaching, doing that. I imagine, oh, like, not just giving the punchline yeah. or in discipleship or yeah. spiritual direction, that reserve. I think Hans has drawn attention to this in the past, um, as of others, that, um, that one of the tasks in sacramental preaching is to, is to withhold a bit. Mm. So we find this, that we can go the whole year without preaching on the crucifixion but we're about to hit the point when you do, mm -hmm. and then you pull back. Um, and this, this, has a very, uh, a, this has a very good quality to it. It, um, it doesn't assault the emotions, it doesn't assault the senses. Uh, however, um, it does invite people into contemplation, um, which is where these seeds take root. Which is also a great way for new catechists to hide. Oh, yeah. Um, if you're a new catechist, I, 
this is a great place to hide. Say, instead of, you know, I don't know, let me get back to you. Well, we're not there yet. Yeah. I'm gonna reserve. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you don't know. That's right. And you need to go find out. But it actually lowers the bar for um, catechesis as a, as a front porch, a, a square one um, kind of place for new Christians being initiated into the mysteries. Not do, needing to, to sell the farm on the first lecture. I do think something has to be said about moral formation as well within, within the context of catechesis, uh, precisely because of what you said. Um, deontology is a problem. It's not just sort of like an opinion. It's a problem. It's a problem that many of our people buy into. Um, and it, it, many of you know this pastorally, that the disastrous effects of the purity culture are upon us. Of what? The purity culture. This is, this is an example of how disastrous deontology is. Many, many who, who still persist in the purity culture uh, would not admit the sacramental nature of the human body. Um, it seems to me you have to go there first. You have to teach what is a human body, what is, what is a human being. You have to address things like the resurrection of the dead, uh, which is so often left aside, <laughs> precisely because of the reason you state. There's, there's, no, there's no accounting for the resurrection of the dead in, in, in modern ontology. Um, and I think that if you get to the root cause, catechetically, then you'll at least be part of the way towards solving the issue. But you still have to account for virtue formation. And that means having, having a community with a catechetical baseline, right? The, the, the community has to be taught and instructed in the ways of Christian believing and prayer and action uh, such that it gives rise to um, a community that, that, that in common reinforces this, this life of virtue. Um, so I think that's essential. So about, but about sexuality, here's a good example of how I think this plays out is that culturally right now, um, the conversation around human sexuality is, is an imposition cloaked in discovery, self-discovery, right? It is, a, it is an external imposition of what the human body is for, what sexuality is for, what it is. Um, it's actually an imposition, something foreign to humanity that is um, disguised as like a self-discovery of sorts. When in reality, a mystagogy would say, uh, would actually um, come, out discover, come at discovery realizing that there is something embedded that God has like made one for in the image of God. And, and so... But so there's like there's a subtle approach that's different. I think it works out actually in a way that sounds not like um, here here are all the bad ways you should use your body. Um, like our catechism actually has a sentence in there, right? In in um, in the catechism, just like these are all awful things. Okay, fine. But the, <laughs> um, these are all awful ways to use your body. But um, I would want to ask, and I have had to ask, like what does mystagogy in a room of with people who have very complex um, sexual self-understandings and stories, people coming from very different places, how do we not hit them in the face with a two-by-four with this, but actually in a mystagogical kind of way, discover where people are, what God is actually doing in their lives, and then without imposing a secular sexuality upon them, um, unearthing and discovering the way, like, better questions rather than, um, like, should I do this or not, is what are our bodies for? What do our bodies participate in? What reality do our bodies like indicate and, and therefore participate in that we could discern? And then, and then 
the virtuous kind of follow-up, so then how should we live? Well, unsurprisingly, Sean's more pastorally sensitive than I am. That's uh, not true. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I, think that, I think that it is one place where we can sort of unearth the, the, uh, the contradiction here, which is, is my body showing me something that is meaningless, or is it showing me something that's very meaningful? And very often in the culture, you hear two things at the same time. What is it? Um, and I think, I think this is a great area for mystagogy, especially is to, to see the body in a different light. Um, and one of the ways we see the, the body in a different light is, is, is in worship. Mm. Um, liturgical worship shows the body in a different light. What does the body do within, within liturgical space? I mean... One of the things I just, I never get tired of is seeing the progression of the body through mm. liturgical space like this one. Watching people come up an aisle, um, up to an altar, up to kneel. Um, to see the delight on faces, especially little children, as this happens. Um, because what they're learning is, and what they're, what, they're, what they're taking in is a new way of seeing the body in the light of, of revelation. Um, and, 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 uh, and I think that that's something that, that you can't lose. Mm. Um, um, the telos of the body is being revealed in liturgical action. Mm -hmm. I think so. Mm -hmm. Just wanted to invite some other questions as well. Uh, so I'll pitch this at everyone, but I imagine Hans might pick it up. So I'm converted to Christian Platonism. I, I read your books, I thought. <laughs> well, I couldn't have beaten them to it. So, uh, but, uh, but here's my question. So if I were to ask Plato, where does catechesis happen? The Mino, his answer is going to be, well, your soul's existed up in the form world, the idea world. It, it learned there, and then it transmigrates through bodies and keeps learning, right? So then if I say, okay, like, I'm not going to be committed to that part of Christian Platonism, right? Because mostly transmigration of souls is a heresy. So, um, <laughs> Um, so then I think, like, the sacramental nature of everything, catechesis to, to do that. But my question is actually, like, where and why does it come up short? So, so let me phrase it differently. My undergraduate students, if they buy into a sacramental worldview like yours, like psychology, they'll say, great, forget church, nature, my friend. Right? So, but, but I, my answer would be, but... That's going to come up short, right? So you see what I'm getting at there? I'm trying to think of, like, catechesis is the bridge between the sacramental ontology and our ability to be knowledgeable participants. But if Plato says recollection and we say something like catechesis, my question is, though, is, like, I, I'm just curious as to how we could name the ways it will still come up short. Yeah. Um, great, great question. And before I get to that question, can I just make a comment about the interaction here, <laughs> um, which I'm really grateful for, um, because um, I won't talk, I, I didn't talk much, in it, and I won't either this afternoon, about liturgy and catechesis. Um, and it's a really important topic, so I'm really grateful that came up. Um, <clears throat> and... Um, um, our youngest daughter uh, is in her fourth year at Baylor. And uh, you can imagine why I'm, as, as a parent, grateful that she ended up at 
Christchurch right from the start, <laughs> uh, which is a really good home. Um, and uh, the comments that both um, Father Lee and uh, Father Sean made about, about um, liturgy illustrates exactly why I'm, why I'm grateful for that. Um, because uh, liturgy itself has a catechetical function. Um, liturgy is catechesis. You know, when I, I've been talking for the most part about catechesis as, as, as Mr. Gaji is thinking here about catechism class, and that's all perfectly fine and good. Nothing wrong with that. Um, but catechesis starts, um, well, if, especially if you take nature and supernatural as closely re related to and linked to one another as I do, catechesis starts from the moment uh, that, that the child looks up at the, at the mother and sees the mother smile, as Balthazar would put it. Right? That's, when, that's, I think, when catechesis starts. So the entire life um, of the child from beginning to end uh, is catechesis, and it comes to its climax, and it's in part, um, in part um, uh, beginning of a response uh, to Greg, um, it comes to climax in the liturgy of the church. Um, and um, I also really like especially uh, the, the notion that um, what you do in catechism class is A, as Sean put it, a recollection with Ambrose, a recollection of the sacramental mysteries themselves, and B, is in some manner a participation in those, as you put it, in that um, taking, taking kids through uh, the liturgical movement by taking them into the, into, into the church building and going through the various things that we do in liturgy. Um, so that the catechism class is shaped by the liturgy. Um, both of those elements, I think, are, are, are important in terms of what, what catechesis is like. So the liturgy is catechetical, and our catechism class should be uh, informed by uh, what we do liturgically, should be shaped by that. Um, so yeah, thank you for, for all that. It's really, really helpful. Um, in terms specifically to, to uh, Greg's question, um, in terms of transmigration of souls, um, um, there's two ways in which I think Christian theology subverts that. One is um, um, by the doctrine of the Trinity. So that for a Christian understanding, it is um, when the Father generates the Son, um, it is... Um, in, it, it is in his speech of the Son, in his generation of the Son, eternally, um, that everything, quote-unquote, is already there. So um, creation is not a surprise to God, but is the outcome of, of, of um, uh, uh, the fitting outcome, you could say, the congruous outcome of um, what is eternally there in the sun. Um, that's why creation bespeaks the character of God. Um, so for, for, for Augustine, when he uh, articulates 
um, when he articulates a Christian understanding of forms, it's not in, the, in a strictly Platonic fashion. So when you have, uh, for, when you have Plato, the forms are, are, are greater than the gods. <laughs> the gods look up to the forms, not so for Augustine, right? So the, the quote-unquote forms, if you want to use that language still, which I think is fine, but it, it's always given within a Trinitarian doctrine of God. Um, so it, it's, it has a Christological grounding for, for Augustine, I think. Um, and in that understanding, you can never have a transmigration of souls. That's one way in which I think Christian tradition subverts a purely Platonic understanding of, of forms. And the other thing I would want to say about that is that um, I mean, we've talked a lot in the, in, in the back and forth here about the role of the body, which I really think, which I think is great that, that we, we talked about that and about, about sexuality and so on. Um, what that says is that um, the body is not an afterthought, um, but is given, in some sense given, with the eternal generation of the sun, if what I said earlier is true. is given with the generation of the sun. Um, even Thomas Aquinas, who in many ways I deeply appreciate, I think falls short. In, his, in the way in which he articulates the role of the body in the eschaton. Um, I, I think Gregory of Nyssa does much better there. And I think um, Jonathan Edwards does much better there. Um, um, the, bo- uh, um, the glory of, 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 of God is something that, and, and Palamas does much better there. So um, my understanding, um, and, and that is Aquinas' too. Body and soul are both meant for the hereafter. But um, the, full, the fullness of, beatific, of the beatific vision cannot happen, I think, until we're re-embodied. I think Aquinas struggles on that score. So for Aquinas, the saints already... Um, see the essence of God. Well, my understanding, at least the way Aquinas articulates it, will never see the essence of God. But, but as Palamas says, there is a supra-intellectual and a supra-somatic, supra-bodily vision of God. So that the transfiguration of us as body slash soul involves not just the soul, but also the body. So that the physical eyes, I think, are going to be transformed. Um, all of that Plato can never do, right? because the, the, the body is just too problematic for that. But, but with the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, you can, and I think are required, really, to do that. Those are some thoughts. I don't know if they completely answer your question, but... Right, exactly. I do, I do think there's, there's one thing that I think we should say, which is that um, the experience of initiation and the practice of initiation in the church today is very short. So as to say, uh, 
I believe in Jesus. Can I be baptized? Well, sure. Let's schedule it for two Sundays from now or next Sunday or tomorrow or we'll do it in my backyard. Uh, it's, it's so fast that there's not time to account for all the things that can happen in, in this in liminal space between now and the moment of baptism. Um, a lot of that is just because we're sort of in the waning hours of Christendom and it's, and it's, it's a weird place to be. I think you know that better than anybody. Um, that's why I've advocated for a long time. Lengthen that out to at least a year, maybe two. Probably two now. Um, give it a Yes, a lot more time. Um, well, because conversion is not on a dime for most people. It is for some, um, but not for most. It takes time. It takes it takes uh, it takes input. It takes and so as I've as I know students very, probably very much like yours at Baylor who are in the honors college and they you know they they're very bright who could levitate to exactly the kind of phenomenon you say, which is, um, you know, well, so who cares? Why, I'll, just, I'll just go to I'll go to the beautiful park we have on a Sunday and walk the trails, and that'll be sufficient. Um, I really do think that it's because they haven't, they haven't had a substantial period of initiation. Um, they were baptized on a dime in whatever church they grew up in. They were baptized as infants, and nobody took that catechesis following that very seriously. Certainly not of their parents, um, and and they're they're as I love Chris, uh, um, Kennedy and says here, they're barely Christian. And that mystagogy happens for the fathers before and after. Yeah, um, I mean some some I think it's oh, Ambrose or Chrysostom. Yeah. It was after they're baptized. Let, now let me explain to you what just happened. You know, in the, in the middle of the night of the Easter vigil, which is an important point to make. I think for infants. Were baptized, that our commitment that we make at the font, who will, you know, see that these children are raised in the way of the Lord, we will, you know, um, that commitment needs to be carried through by all of their spiritual parents in the body. So that, Gregory goes on eternally. Right. Gregory of Nyssa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because well, there's an eternal entering into the life of God. Yeah. yeah. So uh, much longer than two years even, Lee. <laughs> <laughs> well, and one, of my, one of my favorite images of mystagogy is what Ageria says of, of um, of Easter Sunday afternoon in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is that you can hear the shouts go up from the neophytes who've just been baptized mm -hmm. that night as they listen to the preaching of the bishop, this mystagogical preaching, explaining, this is what happened to you last night. Mm -hmm. And they can't contain themselves because they're so elated. Um, we've lost, uh, I think you're right to say, we need to gain that enchantment back, but part of that comes from deep reserve um, let it out slowly uh, rather than all at once. So. Let us give a shout. Of, uh, <laughs>